Hello, and welcome to another edition of the American Thoracic Society Breathe Easy podcast series. I'm Dr. Jonathan Jun, a pulmonary critical care physician at Johns Hopkins. Today, we'll be talking all about CPAP adherence. We will be interviewing three people, Dr. Clint Kushida from Stanford University, Dr. Mark Aloya from National Jewish Health, and Dr. Terry Weaver from University of Chicago. Today, I am joined by Dr. Clint Kushida. Dr. Kushida is a neurologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford University Medical Center. He has held several leadership positions in the field, including Division Chief and Medical Director of Stanford Sleep Medicine, former President of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, founding President of the World Sleep Society and California Sleep Society. Hello, Dr. Kushida, and thank you for joining us today to discuss this important topic of CPAP adherence. To help us get to know you better, can you just tell us how you became interested in the field of sleep medicine in general and sleep apnea in particular? Sure. So back in um, 1977, when I was an uh, undergraduate at at Stanford, uh, there was an advertisement in the school newspaper about anyone interested in being a sleep technologist to observe patient sleep and stay up you know, watching um, how people uh, react uh, during sleep. So uh, that advertisement sounded very intriguing. So my freshman roommate and I went to the meeting, and it turned out to be a recruitment session for people that were willing to to um, stay overnight to watch um, a patient sleep that had this condition called narcolepsy. And we could do that for academic credit. So um, I signed up to do that, and and, uh, I did that for close to about a year. And then um, I became hooked on on, um, exploring sleep. So to make a long story short, um, that's how I became interested in in sleep. And after that, I became um, interested in looking at the basic uh, function of sleep and uh, subsequently became interested in uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And the way I became interested in that was I began to see a lot of patients that had had um, obstructive sleep apnea and wanted to explore the cause of that and the best treatments for them. Great. Very interesting. So let's change gears. And the subject of this podcast is primarily about CPAP adherence. Can you give us your take on the scope of that problem? Yeah, so uh, I just want to start just by painting a a really broad picture of of adherence in general. We know that uh, this problem of patient adherence to treatment is found in many chronic major disease states. And, you know, obstructive sleep apnea is obviously a a chronic disease, but other uh, major diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, uh, HIV infection, for for example, uh, it's estimated that the adherence to even uh, oral hypoglycemic agents in patients that have type 2 diabetes ranges from 36% to 93%. So in these large or major chronic disease states, adherence is a a major problem. And we know that treatment adherence is associated with improved quality of life and also reducing disease-related events and healthcare utilization and also health-related costs. So in the field of, of sleep medicine per se, it's a major problem for cl- clinician and patients because patient adherence to CPAP device, it's estimated that, that 29 to 83% of patients are non-adherent to CPAP using the metric of less than or equal to four hours per night. Very good point there about 
general adherence as an issue across the board. In terms of CPAP specifically, are we good at predicting what type of patients are going to have biggest challenges using their CPAP? Uh, yeah, so, you know, um, that's one of the, the reasons why I became interested in predictive models of of adherence because right now we ha- don't have a good way of predicting which patients, you know, will be good adherers and which patients won't. And there have been, you know, work on this. I mean, um, there have been studies that have looked at who, who might be good adherers and who might not. But just to give an example, there's hundreds of factors that are associated with adherence. It, it ranges from things like demographic factors such as, such as age, gender, race, employment, socioeconomic status, to disease such as type, severity, duration, uh, cognitive factors such as educational level, uh, their health literacy, uh, psychosocial factors such as, as mood, personality type, coping style, motivation, patient healthcare provider relationships, uh, health status such as the number of number type and, and or severity of comorbidities, number of visits to healthcare providers, and, and treatment, you know, such as the burden, complexity of the treatment, the side effects, the effectiveness, uh, the cost. So there's a lot of different factors that go into the um, into you know whether or not a person uh, might adhere to to uh, a CPAP device, and and these factors have been looked at, but but um, you know we do know some some basic things that. Um, for instance, um, patients without a bed partner might have a harder time with um, with getting used to the device. Um, patients that have have um, not a good support system, patients that have not uh, that don't have frequent visits with their healthcare provider, uh, who can address um, the side effects or problems with the device. These are the type of things that that uh, can um, make it harder for the person to to um, be, uh, adhere to the device. And these are just a, a sampling of some of the, some of the factors that, that can have an impact. Got it. It sounds like a very complicated uh, number of variables. Do you know of any specific approaches that have been proven to improve adherence, whether those are behavioral or technology-related, like certain CPAP modes? Yeah, well, we do know that um, you know, having the data now in the cloud, the adherence data, where it's available um, to most uh, patients and most of their providers, you know, has been a tremendous impact because uh, the patients not only get to see how well they're adhering, you know, to the device on a nightly basis, but the providers themselves can can um, get longitudinal data on how well they're adhering over time. So, and and how well the uh, machines are actually working on uh, working on their severity of the apnea. We can actually, you know, get estimates of their apnea hypopnea index, as well as the amount of leak, uh, you know, from their mask or from their mouth. So all these data, you know, does provide immediate feedback to the patient as well as to the uh, provider. So that can be um, that can help to adjust their their pressures their swap out their mask if the mask um, is a problem, if they're getting a lot of discomfort or leak, you know, that, can, that can also improve the situation. So this type of technology um, has been shown to improve things. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, um, 
more frequent visits with the patient it has been shown to improve their their ability to um, you know adhere to treatment. Yeah, I, I think maybe naively that you know patients that have a high AHI or who are particularly sleepy would be the adherent ones. Um, can you speak to whether that's an oversimplification? Yeah, in most cases that's true. Um, however, even though they have a high degree of disease burden, they might not be able to tolerate the device because of things like the, the mask or the pressure. And this is where the, the more frequent visits really uh, can help. For instance, in our clinic, we, we offer things like mass refit visits and pat naps. If the patient is, having, is struggling with their, their mask, uh, they can always go to their DME provider, but if they find out that, that they still need uh, help, you know, we actually have the patients come in for mass refit visit where they're seen by uh, not only an experienced technologist who is, is very adept at detecting what type of a mask or what version of the mask they might need, but they're also seen by our nurse practitioner to, to sort out any, any medical issues they might have with the device. In addition, I mentioned we also have the PAP naps where the patient uh, comes in frequently during the uh, afternoon and they'll have a, a nap wearing the device so we can detect any um, problems that they might have. And we also have them linked up with our provider, uh, our psychologist uh, that specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy that can also help work with them on any behavioral issues that, that they might have, for instance, like claustrophobia with the mask. That's great. It sounds like your patients there have a lot of support from you guys. My last question ties into what you just told me, and that is, what practical advice do you have for patients and physicians out there who are struggling to use CPAP other than these resources? Is there something you tell your patients right when CPAP is being prescribed? Yes, and uh, we're trying to reinstate our uh, CPAP classes that we used to have. Um, most patients, no, no matter where they are in the country, often will have access to local support groups, uh, for instance, the AWAKE network. The AWAKE groups are sponsored or associated with the American Sleep Apnea Association. And these support groups actually help patients to uh, learn more about um, CPAP and, and sleep apnea, and they can talk with the other patients on, on, uh, within the group to learn their, their uh, tips for getting more uh, adherent to, this, to their uh, CPAP devices. In addition, you know, even within our center, we're trying to reinstate our CPAP classes, which were similar to the white group. But what would happen is, is the patients that were just starting CPAP would come to an afternoon session, typically led by one of our um, physicians specializing in sleep apnea, and also, as I mentioned, our cognitive behavioral therapy specialist that would help with any. Um, psychological or or uh, behavioral tips to improve their their use and um, get them at a very high level of adherence to to CPAP. Overall, for patients that are struggling with CPAP, what the recommendation should be is that they should, if it's a mask or a device issue, they should first see their DME company, so the durable medical equipment uh, equipment company that prescribed the device and mask. They should first talk to them to see, especially if they're having a mask or device issue. If it's a medical issue related to 
to uh, their use of CPAP, like uh, if they're feeling claustrophobia or if they're feeling that the pressure is too high, um, issues like that, they should definitely contact their, their uh, provider. And these days, uh, it's become more and more um, easy to contact their provider, not only by phone, but a lot of centers also have a secure messaging system. Uh, we also had, as part of some of our research studies, we have a sleep technologist that uh, received certification in clinical sleep health and is offered to the Board of Registered Polysomnographic Technologists, or the BRPT. For people that have this credential, it's an advanced level examination for healthcare providers and educators who work directly with sleep medicine patients, families, and practitioners. And the idea is to coordinate and manage patient care, improve outcomes, and educate the patient and the community and advocate the importance of good sleep. So I'm trying to research within our center was that having these sleep technologies that are CCSH credentialed to actually contact our our patients um, a few weeks after they started uh, CPAP just to see what type of uh, problems they're grappling with. Great. That's very helpful. And um, for listeners that are curious about the AWAKE network, I did look online and you can access that at sleepapnea.org, which basically has a multi-state menu of looking for support groups. I guess uh, one issue that I thought of now as we were talking would be, at what point do you uh, resort to alternative therapies for sleep apnea if a patient says they can't tolerate CPAP? Is it at your particular center? Um, is it a long process before you say, let's just switch you to an oral appliance, or are there any patients where you'll just go right to that off the bat? Well, the, the best way is to, just by talking with the patient, to see what the underlying issue is. So if it is, for instance, claustrophobia, uh, you know, in that case, you might be able to work with um, a cognitive therapy specialist to see if they might be able to adapt to the device. And even trying them on a different interface, for instance, nasal pillows as opposed to nasal masks might be a benefit. Uh, so that's just for claustrophobia. And same thing with other other things like, you know, um, if they feel the pressure is too high, if they have a lot of aerophasia, for instance, where they're swallowing a lot of air and, make, and have a lot of bloating. There are ways of managing these types of patients. But after uh, you work with the patient for several weeks and you just haven't been able to to um, uh, make it so that the patient is able to tolerate the device. And if the patient uh, himself or herself just says, yeah, you know, I gave it a good shot. I, I just can't tolerate the device. I, I try, I've been trying everything that you've recommended, but still, you know, I, I just have uh, the thought that, you know, there's no way that, that I can get used to the device. And when, when you have reached that, that point, that's when um, it's a good idea to try uh, a different thing like, for instance, oral appliances. Okay, great. Uh, I think that draws our portion of this interview to a close. I want to thank you, Dr. Kashida, for your time. Um, do you have any take-home messages for the audience about what we just talked about? Um, the only take-home I would say is that, you know, like any medical treatment, it might take a while to get used to the device. So as a rule of thumb, um, 
And generally, it might take like about a month, month and a half to get used to the device and about a month, month and a half to start seeing benefit. So it encourages the patient to to uh, give it a good try um, for at least three months before just quitting it. Um, I would not recommend that, you know, the patient just trying it for, for one night or one week and just saying, oh, yeah, this is horrible. I'm, uh, I don't want to try it anymore. I would tell the patient to, to try and give it a good three months, try to use it consistently. If they have trouble, they might try doing it is wearing it while they're awake, like while they're watching television before they go to bed just to get accustomed to the device. That's great advice. Thank you again, Dr. Kishida, for your time. Sure, no problem. I am now joined by Dr. Mark Aloya. Dr. Aloya is a clinical psychologist and currently associate professor in the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. He's a board-certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist and is on the editorial board of Sleep and Behavioral Sleep Medicine. He's also, as uh, he's disclosed to us ahead of time, global lead on behavior change at uh, Philips, which makes CPAP machines. So thank you, Dr. Loya, for coming to join us today and to warm up and get to know you better. I'm interested in how you became interested in sleep apnea and sleep medicine in general. Well, thank you. First, let me just thank you for uh, inviting me um, to speak at this podcast. I think it's an important topic, and I'm happy to contribute. So I became interested in sleep um, kind of serendipitously. I was an intern at Brown University uh, studying neuropsychology and had a very strong behavioral background. And in the internship at the time, you had three rotations. Two were going to be in your primary field of specialization. So for me, that was in neuropsychology. And one was to be what they called out of track. And my out of track rotation was in sleep. And I just sort of fell in love with behavioral treatment for insomnia. It pulled upon a lot of my sort of roots and training and in, that, uh, very, in a very strong behavioral program. So I was able to apply a lot of that and, and uh, get back into doing therapy with patients. And then I developed a real interest in both the neuropsychology of sleep apnea as a research focus, as well as behavioral interventions in the context of sleep apnea, particularly to improve adherence to CPAP therapy. Great. Thank you for that story. Can you give us an idea in your practice and in your research about the scope of the issue with CPAP adherence? Sure. So when I started studying CPAP adherence, well, I guess that was in the mid-90s, and it was a real problem. You know, Jonathan, we had been monitoring adherence to CPAP for a while at that time, um, and we had the best monitor of a health behavior bar none. We knew when people were using their mask. We knew when they had a leak. Um, it was really state of the art. And that was appealing to me as a behavioral scientist because I always wanted to have access to real data rather than ask people if they were using CPAP. Um, but with all of this monitoring, we started publishing lots of papers and we realized that people were not using their CPAP like we wanted them to. And you always hear this average of about four hours a night, and that had been published for years and years and years, really um, highlighting the need for some intervention. So for me, it was just kind of a ripe opportunity um, because we had this very good therapy that would eliminate apneas whenever you wore it, for the most part, um, but people weren't wearing it effectively. 
Now, the question that I always come across is starting a new patient on CPAP in my clinic, how good are we at predicting whether that person in front of me is going to stick with their CPAP? Do we have any hmm. notion about from the PSG data or something about their clinical background that will help us predict that? Yeah, you know, we want to have those answers as early as possible. And I think that that desire leads us to building some hypotheses and using our intuition. And and many times as clinicians, we feel like we have a sense of what's going to happen with a patient. And I think that if you look at the literature, clinical intuition just isn't as strong as we wish it were. So um, that's something to recognize, right, that we when we see patients, we often fall into making judgments about the success that they're likely to have or not. And sometimes those judgments can be accurate, but oftentimes they're not. So I think there's really not much in the very early stages. Now, we've published on some psychological things that are very strong predictors of adherence, but usually not strong predictors of adherence before someone has had some experience with CPAP. So if I can give you an example, um, self-efficacy, which is roughly one's confidence that she can persist in a difficult situation with any given behavior. Um, Self-efficacy is the biggest predictor of success in adhering to CPAP. But when you ask people about their confidence around using CPAP before they ever had experience with it, they're not very good predictors. If you wait one week and you ask them those questions, you can predict 20% of the variance in six-month use just after one week of therapy, over and above disease severity and demographic variables. So it can be a very strong predictor. It's just that um, most of the time in our clinics, we don't ask those questions. Right. So what are you asking in that point? You're saying after after someone's come back to you after a week of CPAP use, you'll say, so, you know, what do you think? And do you think you'll be able to stick with this? Or is there something else that you... Yeah, we ask... Sure. We ask very specific questions. Um, A couple, you know, the two primary questions, you can ask it in terms of how motivated are you, but we generally ask, how important do you think it is to treat your sleep apnea? We kind of do that on a scale of one to 10. And then we ask the confidence question, and that's how confident are you that you can persist at treating your sleep apnea over the next two weeks, even if you and you can fill in the blank, have troubles with a stuffy nose or traveling. You know, it's self-efficacy is really one's confidence to persist with the behavior in light of that persistence being difficult. So a good example from the smoking literature is not can I keep from smoking, but can I keep from smoking when I'm out having a drink with my friends in a situation that's highly primed for me to fall back to my old habits? Can I persist with the new ones? So we just adapt those questions to sleep apnea. That gets us a little bit into the therapies that are out there that are in your realm in terms of behavior. These questions that you just asked, are they modifiable? And are there approaches that you take with a person to try and, you know, get them to be more self-efficacious or more adherent? Sure. Yes, they are modifiable. And we've been doing this in behavioral medicine for many, many years. And we modify you know, the behavior, the time frame, and sometimes the, the contextual situations based on the, on the patient, right? So in the case of the smoking that I mentioned, if we know that this person does go out and have drink with their friends and that's a highly primed situation, then we'll use that 
particular example for him. Um, but what I do, what I recommend doctors do in their, in their clinic is very simple. You ask a motivation question. On a scale of one to 10, how motivated are you to treat your sleep apnea over the next couple of weeks? And it really can't be a one or you wouldn't be talking to me. This is how I present it. And it probably can't be a 10 or you wouldn't really need me. So the reality is in most cases, it falls between those two numbers. So they'll give you a number and then you ask them a very simple question. Why isn't your number higher? And this elicits in the patient all the barriers that she anticipates facing in therapy. And you listen with, uh, with uh, um, an empathetic ear. You repeat back some of those barriers, say, okay, I, I can see that these are concerns that you have. But you don't focus dramatically on the barriers. And we've found in the literature that when you focus on barriers around behavior change, you can elicit barriers, but you can solve those barriers and you'll still have problems with the behavior. Sometimes new barriers arise. And a good example of this is if you look at very early versions of CPAP, they were far um, less advanced than the ones we have now, and yet adherence hasn't changed dramatically. So you can solve barriers and the behavior will persist. So after you express empathy around those barriers, you ask the critical question, why isn't your motivation lower? Why isn't your number lower? And that's a really tough question for some patients to answer, but it is the critical facilitators that I personally think will contribute to me being motivated to use CPAP in this case. So when you ask, uh, say, for example, someone rates a six and you say, why isn't your number four? Then that person has to really elicit those personal reasons for use. And you repeat those back to the patient. You make a note of it in the chart. And when the patient's struggling, you can always go back to his or her words around what their personal motivators for use were. And that can be very powerful. You're trying to help them discover, if you will, their own thought process about why there are benefits there that they're not reaping from using the CPAP, if I understand correctly. It, exactly. So, you know, one of the things that I always say is that um, it's nice if you match, if your value system matches that of the patient or you understand his or her value system. So if you look at things from their perspective, you're going to be a better clinician because you're going to speak in their perspective. This is one of the reasons that our friends help us more than, than strangers because we share the same value system. So with a keen ear, you can start to pick up what is really motivating someone in their own personal life. And instead of talking to them about why you would be motivated, um, you speak to them in their own words. Great. I think you touched on something that many physicians, at least the pulmonary ones like myself, focus on is the technology and the, the mask and the pressure settings and all that. And it does sound like those might not be so central to most cases. How often are you delving at all into that with the patient? Or is it that by the time they're coming to see you, supposedly those issues have been hammered out and it's really more the core thinking? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think I focus on those psychological issues because of, you know, that's, that's my tool. Um, that's my hammer. But it's important because I think we underestimate those issues generally in medicine. I think there are plenty of people that you'll find who will focus on mask issues and blower issues. 
um, and comfort issues. And it's not to say that we shouldn't focus on those because for any given patient, if you change out a mask, maybe you're going to really make it easier for her to continue with CPAP therapy. But in the patient population as a whole, I think you're going to win a little bit more with some of these psychological issues. And we, I say that because we have a whole lot of history in behavior change around weight loss and exercise and nutrition. And we see that when you take um, a routine down from 60 minutes to 30 minutes to 20 minutes to a 10-minute workout, it still doesn't help create a populace of behavior change. Um, so it's, it's less maybe about the barriers and more about the facilitators. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, yeah. I know this might be a hard thing to answer, but do you feel that you've had success? I mean, can you quantify uh, out of the people that you see how many are success stories versus, you know, don't ever make it and end up going on to sure. have untreated sleep apnea or use some uh, alternative therapy? Sure. Well, I should say that I don't see patients anymore because I'm busy with uh, my research and the industry work, but we've done a lot of research on this, probably, you know, as much as anyone else. Um, and we built a, what we call a, a motivational enhancement therapy for CPAP. That's based on motivational interviewing. And a lot of what I've been touching on are techniques from motivational interviewing. So in those studies, you know, we've been quite successful, um, in some cases more than I had expected. So what we found, which is really very interesting, Jonathan, is that the people who struggle very, on in th very early on in therapy, they're hard to save. It doesn't mean we can't save them, and it doesn't mean we can't save them with things like motivational enhancement. But generally, they're pretty hard to save, and that tends to be that bottom you know, 10 to 15 percent of people. Then there's about 15 to 20 percent of people at the very top end who are good users of CPAP. They feel very motivated. They know it's important. They feel confident they can use CPAP. And what we found in our studies is that just providing them simple education like we do in all of medicine, you know, telling them about the risk they, have, they may have to their heart or um, mood or cognitive functioning can really motivate them to use even more. But these are the people that come back to us in our clinics and say, Doc, you saved my life. And so it reinforces us to tell everyone what we know, everything we know about sleep apnea, right? So it reinforces that cycle of education. But remember, we've found it's only working in those people who are not struggling early on. And the middle group, the people who are kind of ambivalent in their, in their use of CPAP, they're you know, anywhere from, I'd say, three to six hours a night in that first week, those are the people who respond best to this motivational enhancement intervention, which, by the way, is, is designed for people who are ambivalent around behavior change, and that's most of us. So, you know, that's kind of what we see in the research, and this has been replicated by multiple groups. We've now incorporated this at Philips. We've incorporated this into um, a mobile application, we're seeing really pretty dramatic results um, in helping people achieve higher levels of adherence. That's great. So, this, so there are apps that are free for people to download that, can, that we can direct yeah. them to? Yeah. yeah, we absolutely wanted to make, you know, there was no question that was going to be a free mobile application um, because ultimately my belief is that we need to give 
every bit of support to patients that we can. This is not an easy behavior. This is not an easy treatment for people. Um, and, you know, for many people, it can be life-saving. So we really wanted to make sure most people, everyone had, the, had access to it. It's yeah. now in ni- 19 countries, and we have over 800,000 people on it. So Great. And I know you've disclosed that you're with Philips. What's the name of this, yes. um, the application? It's called Dream Mapper. Dream Mapper. Okay, great. That will be a good resource out there for patients. And some of what you've described, is this possible for, I'm, I'm sure it is possible, I just... Is it practical that pulmonologists or other sleep doctors could implement some of what you're describing in the behavioral motivation techniques in their clinic? I know that the realities of a busy practice are that patients don't get that from us. Are there ways that, that we can practically implement a little bit of what you and your colleagues do in our clinical practice? Absolutely. And, you know, there are many... Um, motivational interviewing practitioners out there who are training physicians. Um, and the people who develop motivational interviewing, you know, they write about it in the context of healthcare as getting back to good bedside manner. So you don't have to worry about the details of the techniques, although I gave you a good one, that scaling technique, that one to 10 scaling technique. But, uh, and that can be done very quickly. But you really have to think about the spirit of the relationship, the rapport that you're building. I think, um, Reflective listening is always a very good technique. Um, we often think, think it's trite. We're not giving any answers when we're just re- doing reflective listening. But what I've found, and I think many therapists, is that being silent with a patient can bring upon uh, or, or can, uh, can raise a lot of very important issues within the context of the clinical relationship. Um, you start to learn more about your patients. When your patients feel heard, they say more. Um, and it gives you a little bit more insights into how to help them. Right, that's very helpful. Mark, I think that draws us close to the finish of this. I wanted to see if there's anything that, I, uh, that we didn't cover that you want to emphasize. Or, and if not, then you can just give us you know, maybe a take-home point or two for our listeners. You know, what I would want people to remember is that um, – We really haven't invented anything new here. We've taken upon 40, 50 years of behavioral medicine research. Um, What works with exercise, what works with nutrition, what works with smoking and alcohol cessation, and we've pulled it into CPAP use. So I say that because I want your listeners to have confidence that what we're looking at, what we're talking about, is very well researched. Um, These are techniques that help us be better clinicians. We all want to be good clinicians. And they help our patients um, achieve better outcomes. And really, that's why we're here. So um, just keep reading about it, you know, thinking about motivational interviewing and building that uh, rapport with patients. And um, I think you'll find those relationships are, are even better. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Aloya. All right. Thank you. I'm now joined by Dr. Terry Weaver. Dr. Weaver is a dean and professor in the College of Nursing at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's an international expert on sleep disorders and has done extensive work in the area of CPAP adherence for sleep apnea. She's been inducted into the Sigma Theta Tau International Nurse Researcher Hall of Fame 
uh, was also elected in 2017 to a two-year term on the board of directors at the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. And in 2018, she was named to the first class of the Fellows of the American Thoracic Society. Uh, she also was a former uh, board member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. So we're delighted to have her and her expertise here. Dr. Weaver, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss the topic of CPAP adherence for sleep apnea. To help us to get to know you better, can you tell us how you became interested in sleep apnea and sleep medicine in general? Well, I actually started through my clinical practice some time ago, actually before I even started doctoral study, when I was seeing patients with sleep apnea, and uh, this was before the days of continuous positive airway pressure, uh, and uh, patients uh, received tracheostomy, and I spent time helping patients understand how to care for their tracheostomy as part of my uh, clinic practice of patients who had pulmonary disease. I uh, am, by training, a, a pulmonary clinical nurse specialist. Uh, and then, after some time working with them, when I finished my doctoral degree at the University of Pennsylvania, the Center for Sleep and, at that time, Respiratory Neurobiology was um, started by Dr. Alan Pack and uh, associated with Dr. David Dinges, and they were enticing me to come and join them. I had the opportunity to do a postdoc um, with both of them, and that really was my entree to the uh, field of sleep uh, medicine and, and sleep health. Excellent. Can you give us an idea? I mean, I think our audience has a general idea, but in particular about the scope of the problem of CPAP use and adherence. Well, it really is something that has been a challenge for the field. I had first reported, um, on, as others have in the past, both subjectively and objectively measured adherence, especially objectively measured adherence, that patients weren't terribly adherent, and uh, in, in looking at their pattern of adherence found that that pattern was established very early on, and the range has been somewhere between the 30 and 80 percent of the population are not adherent um, if you expect them to use their CPAP, you know, all night long. It isn't just the mask interface. Very early on, Nancy Cribbs originally, and, and I did subsequently as well as others, showed that um, the, the patients who complain the most about CPAP and the mask in particular are the ones who use the device because if the mask is not on your face, you're not complaining about it a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not so much, uh, there are certainly patients um, in a practice that may use that as a reason they're not using it, but systematic research has repeatedly underscored that it's really the patient's perception of their, the fact that they have an illness, that they have obstructive sleep apnea, and then the effectiveness of the treatment that really enters into their decision-making. Good point. I was just about to ask you about predictors of which patients might stick with or not stick with CPAP, and it sounds like you, you hit on the point of perception. Any other factors that we should be looking for clinically that will help us know which patients are at risk for not using CPAP? Well, there, there has been some work to suggest that there is um, somewhat an association with degree of sleepiness, but that is not in, has been the strongest uh, predictor. 
certainly the one of the med, key metrics of obstructive sleep apnea, apnea hypopnea index, does not really uh, correlate um, even moderately. It's usually a, it's a weak correlation with adherence. It really doesn't come into play. Um, some of the work that has been done, particularly uh, Amy Sawyer in, in her work, um, looked and did a qualitative study, one of the few that are out there, about asking patients why don't you adhere to CPAP treatment. It was really interesting because it corroborated some of the work I and others have done that have looked at um, using a, a more uh, a survey, an instrument, uh, that have asked patients about particular aspects of using CPAP, um, particularly around their, the notion of self-efficacy. And, and collectively, what we have found is that there are patients um, who accept CPAP, uh, accept, excuse me, sleep apnea as being a risk to their health, understand that uh, CPAP is an effective treatment and can see that they can use their, their, their treatment and readily report problems with using it or are more likely to be adherent than those who are not because those who are not adherent don't see themselves of having uh, sleep apnea as being any problem. Uh, more likely they are ones that have been brought to the physician by a partner and uh, have not really bought into the need to seek medical uh, attention and um, have are, are really give up readily when faced with a challenge of CPAP treatment, are not active um, and planful problem solvers and, and kind of throw up their hands at any um, challenge to overcome with the use of the device. So a few questions upon interview enables us to identify those who may have these tendencies. And in fact, Amy Sawyer developed a screening tool that can be used to do just that. And it's a combination of perception and, and how functional they are and, their, and also their self-efficacy. The other factor that plays in is whether someone is claustrophobic. That's a smaller portion, about 15% of patients have um, either claustrophobic tendencies or didn't know they did, but did once they started using CPAP and they can't use the mask. But as I said, that's a very small proportion of the uh, population, and we have shown that that does make a difference in the length of time they use their treatment. So if the appreciation on the part of the patient about risk is such an important factor, is it the job of the clinicians to do better uh, communication? Should we be, <laughs> for lack of a better word, scaring our patients more about the health implications of sleep apnea? Well, uh, scaring them has been shown to really not do a whole lot, although hmm. maybe showing them the dips in the oxygenation might be helpful. But I think a better approach is, is for example, to ask them whose idea it was to seek um, attention for their sleep problem. If they say, that it was um, a, a primary care provider or it was their idea or maybe a, fr a friend that they have a good relationship with, and that usually signals that they're going to be probably more adherent because they're going to be more receptive that there's something that needs to change. If, in fact, they say, my wife is just, you know, she's tired of my snoring, I don't think I snore, or my partner complains and drags me in to see someone, 
then that's a person that you're going to have to spend more time with in the, initially in the, before their prescribed CPAP treatment to have them better understand the, the risks associated with a sleep apnea. Another good thing is, you know, if you ask patients, are you sleepy, there is the upper sleepiness scale that identifies sleepiness. Sometimes they say, well, I'm not sleepy, but then they're falling asleep in the waiting room. But to put them in the context of what they do every day, you know, do they, do they have problems staying awake at work? Do they have problems with um, uh, marital relations because they fall asleep and, and, you know, the last thing they want to do is, is to engage in sexual activity? How are they at watching movies or TV? Are they falling asleep in the middle of it in the easy chair in the, in the early evening? Or if they're working on, on something that's pretty boring, are they falling asleep? I always tell my students that uh, when I lecture to them that if they fall asleep, it's not because I'm boring. I may be boring, but the real reason is because they've had insufficient amount of sleep, and that's the difference. You don't fall asleep because you're bored. You may be bored, but you'll be awake and bored and not so sleep and bored. So I think getting them to start to think about circumstances that um, they can identify that brings on sleepiness and get them to see how it affects their performance. And that's why I developed the Functional Outcome of Sleep Questionnaire because it gives them different situations like driving long distances or short dif- dif- differences, their relationships, their ability to, to be vigilant, um, their ability to keep up with other people their own age, and, and really to examine under these different situations, how are you doing? And they're more likely to indicate, well, yeah, in these situations, I, 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 I am sleepy. I don't stay awake. Um, and that's sometimes a better context than ask him in a straightforward way, are you sleepy? Because most of them are going to say no. So maybe just the mere act of going through the functional outcomes of sleep questionnaire or something like that would help them gain some insight. Yes. Yes, and of course, more and more laboratories are using the short version, which is 10 questions, so it's easy to fill out, um, and, and, and really has been shown to be very reliable to identify, uh, not as a diagnostic for sleep apnea, but as, you know, to use that as a tool to indicate, to show to the person, geez, you know, here your, here's your score, here's a normal score, and, and you're several points away, and that indicates that you're excessively sleepy, and look at the situations where you're falling asleep. For those, I think you said 15% or so, that, that they are claustrophobic or find that they're claustrophobic once CPAP has started, are there any remedies that can be applied there? Well, there have been studies which are simulation studies that help the patient adapt to CPAP, and, and some of them just need to take a little bit longer. Maybe a daytime nap in the, in the lab will help them acclimate better to it with a lot of coaching, which I think is important, and adjustments to the right mask. I think helping, letting the patient identify what mask they want to use, no matter whether they have claustrophobia or not, is a good practice because I think the more the patient has input into their treatment, the better. Uh, but if, in fact, you've tried all that and they, and they say, no, I, I just can't wear this, then, then certainly depending on the degree of severity, the other options uh, would be oral appliance or hypoglossal nerve stimulation or surgery. There's been some data on using pharmacotherapy Zolpidem, for example, 
when people are getting used to CPAP. What's your opinion about the role of pharmacotherapy? Well, there there has been a few studies um, that have shown that it it has helped with um, patients to relax them and get and have them acclimate to um, CPAP treatment. I think that's fine. You'd want to monitor whether long-term use is necessary. I think cognitive behavioral therapy is now being used more to help patients acclimate to CPAP treatment and, and with wearing the mask, relax and, and be able to have positive thoughts and, and, uh, and other approaches that include good sleep hygiene to optimally be able to get a good night's sleep. There's really not enough studies to say definitively, yes, we should use it in everyone or, or no, we shouldn't. I think it has to be individualized as most um, interventions should be to see if it's a patient, if it's more anxiety and, and difficulty just initiating sleep, then maybe that would be appropriate. That brings me to the, to the last of my questions. Um, I don't know if there's any points that we didn't cover that you want to bring up, and if not, if there are any take-home points that you want to tell our audience. Uh, all patients should be seen within the first two weeks or at least get a phone call and, and be looking at their download and do intervention very early on because we have shown that if you don't intervene early, then patients develop this bad habit of not using it, and it's really hard to change that behavior once it's ingrained. So early follow-ups identify those patients, do a lot of behavioral intervention, which has been shown to be the most effective intervention, is behavioral. Helping patients to perceive the risk, getting them to understand the effectiveness of CPAP, and helping to work on their their, um, self-efficacy and have them feel that they can actually have the volition to use the treatment. Then if if they're they're using it and they're still sleepy, to think about these alerting medications as an intervention to approach their sleepiness. That's very helpful. Dr. Weaver, again, thank you so much for being with us on this podcast today. I know I learned a lot, and I think our audience will as well. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Well, there we have it. We've heard from experts about CPAP adherence. Uh, Dr. Kushida, Aloya, and Weaver have given us some great recommendations. I learned from Dr. Kushida that CPAP adherence is quite similar to that of other chronic medical diseases. He did provide some resources like the AWAKE network, which can be accessed at sleepapnea.org. And he described a couple of resources such as PAP naps and having someone accredited in clinical sleep health who can sometimes help patients with CPAP adherence. From Dr. Aloya, he also reemphasized the fact that we're not very good at predicting the adherence of patients, and he suggested that we ask our patients some motivational interviewing questions, such as, how important is it to you that you treat your sleep apnea on a scale of 1 to 10? How confident are you that you can persist at treating your sleep apnea? On a scale of 1 to 10, how motivated are you to treat your sleep apnea? and then asking our patients why their numbers aren't higher and why they aren't lower. And he also directed us to a mobile application called Dream Mapper. Finally, Dr. Weaver reemphasized the widespread non-adherence of CPAP at 30 to 80%, and that usually these patients declare themselves quite early on in the treatment course. She emphasized that it's typically not a mask issue, it's not an AHI issue, it's about perception. She encourages us to ask our patients about 
who wanted them to be seen in the clinic. She also asked us to go over uh, some questions about sleep quality in general to help patients see the impact of sleepiness on their own lives and emphasize the importance of early follow-up. So with that, I hope that all of you have learned more about CPAP adherence. I certainly have, and that we can put some of these uh, clinical pearls into practice. <laughs>